Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Burr Settles. He did his PhD at, at University of Wisconsin in Madison on active learning kinds of stuff, and then did a postdoc at CMU on the Nell Project. Uh, I, I met Burr there and had a fun time working with him. And for the past five and a half years, Burr has been uh, leading the research team at Duolingo, working on um, helping people to learn languages. Welcome, Burr, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And today uh, we wanted to talk about a paper that was published at an ACL workshop titled Second Language Acquisition Modeling, where you got together an interesting shared task and tried to study the problem of how people learn language. Uh, do you want to tell us what what's going on in this shared task that you did? Uh, yeah, so the idea for this came together, uh, I think, last fall at EMNLP uh, in, in 2017. Uh, and we probably get dozens of data requests at Duolingo, both from computer scientists, uh, learning scientists, and linguists uh, all the time, uh, dozens a month probably. Um, and because we're kind of a small, you know, research and engineering team, we, as a startup, don't necessarily have the bandwidth to satisfy those requests. So we decided to uh, create a shared task that would be of interest to all of these communities uh, and also, you know, valuable and interesting to us using the unique kind of data that we have. Uh, and so we, we got the gears turning on that last fall uh, and released the data set in January and had a workshop in June uh, in New Orleans at the NAACL conference. Oh, did I say that wrong? I, th I thought this was ACL. Yeah, I said that wrong. Sorry, this was a NACL paper. Still organized by the Association of Computational Linguistics, so. Right, right. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for correcting me. So I can imagine um, second language acquisition. That's what your, the, the paper is titled. Your data is dealing with something like this. But I can imagine a lot, a lot of different ways of trying to tackle how people learn languages. Uh, what was your take on how to study this problem? Uh, sure. So I think what we were trying to do with this uh, this shared task was to fill in some gaps in the research, both in uh, the kinds of questions that people had asked and the kind of data that were available to the research community, uh, and to do so in a way that was kind of relevant to us and our user base. So there have been lots of learner data sets uh, that have come out of the intelligent tutoring system and educational data mining communities like uh, Carnegie Mellon hosts data shop, which is a repository of, I don't even know how many uh, hundreds of data sets, but most of those are math or physics related uh, kind of uh, more objective uh, kinds of, of results. And most of them too are true, false or multiple choice questions uh, which lend themselves pretty easily to certain ways of, of computational modeling, and, and there's very little language data there. And, and what language data there is is mostly vocabulary only and flashcard, um, and not really in context of, of longer sentences uh, or even shorter sentences. Uh, and there also exists, on the flip side, lots of learner corpora that have come out of the second language acquisition communities. Uh, but most of that is English, and most of it is also for intermediate or advanced students uh, of a language, uh, of English in particular. And a lot of it's been collected in assessment settings, not actually learning settings. 
Uh, and there's also very little data that's more longitudinal in nature that follows learners over time. Uh, and there's also very little of it for beginners. Uh, like, like I said, it's mostly intermediate and advanced. So we're working in a space where most of our users, uh, well, our users are of Duolingo are, are learning a variety of different languages. Um, about half of our users are learning English, but many of them are learning Spanish or French or even Irish Gaelic. Uh, and, uh, and they do so over longer, longer periods of time. Uh, and the exercise types are kind of multimodal and various. They're not just true false that you actually have to actually have to construct, uh, translations or transcriptions, um, or even speak. And so what we wanted to do was to, you know, at the intersection of this Venn diagram of all these unique properties of what we have that doesn't really, uh, appear to be out there yet. Um, that's what we tried to do. Yeah. It seems like a really nice resource like you have so much data that no one else really has access to of people that are actually trying to learn languages at all different levels it's it's really interesting and it's nice of you to provide this data as a resource for the community yeah and and our our goal was not just to the hope was that we would bring in people not just from computer science machine learning and natural language processing but also engage kind of the the cognitive science and psychology uh, researchers who are relevant to this as well as, you know, applied linguists and second language acquisition researchers. Um, so I was kind of pleased to see that when we released the data set and announced the shared task, there were 15 teams that participated and they were pretty evenly split among those three broad buckets of communities. There were linguists and uh, psychologists and then also computer scientists who who threw their hats into the ring. Yeah, great. I'd, I'd love to dig in, dig into how these different communities approach the problem. But first, I think we should describe the problem. <laughs> sure. uh, so, so what, what was the data that you actually provided for this task? Right. So we, we provided three different tracks of data, uh, for three different languages, languages. So there was an English data set, uh, for people learning English. Uh, a French data set and a Spanish data set. And those are our three most popular courses. And so the data consisted of about 7 million tokens that were generated uh, by about 6,000 students uh, learning those three languages over the course of 30 days. Uh, and we, now, if you've ever used Duolingo, um, there are a variety of different exercise types um, some of them are more passive, some of them are more active. And for this particular data release, for a variety of reasons, we just focused on three of the exercise types um, that, that we use. And it's kind of hard to describe them just in words. So for people who are listening, if you want to pop open uh, sharedtask.duolingo.com, that's the URL that uh, has information about the task and the, the, the different teams' papers as well as a description of the data set. And you can uh, kind of look along as I describe this. So one of the exercises is what we call a reverse translate. So you're given a prompt in your native language, let's say uh, English, you have the B is an insect. Uh, and then you have to, if you're learning French, you would have to try, you know, actually type in the translation of that. Uh, La baie est un insect. Uh, and uh, we... There's also a variant of that we call reverse tap, which is a simplified version where you still, it's the same task. You're given a prompt in your native language, and then you have to generate the, uh, 
the foreign language translation, but you're given a, a word bank to choose from, so you don't necessarily have to remember them from memory. So this is what second language acquisition people would call assisted recall. And then uh, there's also a listening transcription task where instead of seeing the prompt, you actually hear the sentence we're trying to get you to generate in the second language, uh, and then you transcribe that. So all three of these are uh, they're tied to written production of the language. Uh, and part of the reason we decided to do it this way is that it, it lent itself to data formats that uh, NLP people would already be familiar with, you know, things like named entity recognition or, or um, parsing. Uh, so, so there were token level data uh, all in the same language, uh, and and that way we didn't have to like worry about flipping because for all of these exercises there also exists the other direction where you're given a prompt in the L2 and you have to generate your native language as well as multiple choice and other kinds of formats. So we we restricted it just to these three. Okay, so then our data <clears throat> looks like uh, just to summarize this: we have um, people who are learning a different language. We have exercises they're trying to do where in every case they're generating something in the language they're learning uh, either by translation or by transcription and um, we get the log of what they did and we want to decide something about it. Right, so so the task, uh, you can think of it if you're familiar with kind of uh, conal data sets uh, there's, there's a row for each token in the correct answer that we were trying to get them to generate. Uh, and then there's some metadata about who the user is, a unique identifier for each one of the users. Uh, and then some other metadata like what country are they from? How many days have they been learning this course in Duolingo? Are they using the website versus the iOS or Android apps? Uh, what type of lesson this is, whether it was a reverse translate, reverse trap, uh, reverse tap, or a listen exercise. Uh, and then there is a token level label that you're trying to predict of, did they correctly generate this word or not? So for example, let's say you're a Spanish speaker learning English, uh, and you're given, uh, it, what we're trying to get you to generate is she is my mother and he is my father. But instead you type in, she is modder and he is fodder. Uh, so both of the my's, both of the pronouns would be marked wrong because they're missing. And then both mother and father would be marked wrong because they were, they were typos or, or improperly recalled. Do you record what kind of error uh, there was or just that the, the word was wrong? In, in this particular formulation of the task, it's just that the token was wrong. Uh, we, when we were trying to define exactly what this task would be, we, there was a lot of debate over over what to do uh, and and how to formulate it, whether we wanted it just a binary classification task, which is what we ultimately settled on, or or something like even maybe closer to a regression task where we provide the label was like the string edit distance between whatever uh, they were supposed to generate and what they did, uh, or if we wanted a, a multi-class classification task of whether or not it was an omission or... Uh, a typo or a misconjugation or something like that. And for this first stab at anything like this, we decided to just keep it simple uh, and, and make it a binary prediction task of whether or not it was correct or incorrect. Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to keep it simple to start. I was, I was imagining something like 
could you detect which phonemes they're not translating correctly, like your mother versus mother or whatever right. example? You, you could imagine getting incredibly fine-grained here trying to decide what exactly this person doesn't understand. Right. And I think uh, we're, there's a good chance that we'll release a follow-up version of the data set that includes additional metadata about both the prompt and what the, uh, what the, the user typed in. So that if you're interested in those questions, you could go ahead and, and, and dig a little bit deeper into that. And that would be really cool. Um, there are some, believe it or not, GDPR, uh, uh, general data pri privacy regulation uh, issues involved with releasing that data. So that's why we haven't yet. But So I, I wonder if, uh, the, if the user uh, changed the order of words that were supposed to be produced, uh, would this count as correct or incorrect? It depends. So that that is another limitation of this formulation of the task. So um, if you if you deleted a word from the reference answer from what we're expecting you to write, then you would get that wrong. However, if you inserted a word or transposed a word, uh, it might either be marked wrong or just missing from the corpus. So that that is a limitation of like so for example, if you um, uh, if you, if the, she is my mother and he is my father prompt, uh, example from earlier, if the student said something like, she is my only mother, you know, only would just be missing from, uh, the data set. Or if you said she is mother, my, uh, then, I'm not sure which, which one of the tokens would be correct and aligned and the other token would not be. So the alignment has to be monotonic then? Yes. Yeah, and this is because of some details of how you generated the data. You're only looking at the reference, like the correct thing, and, and marking yes, no on the correct output. Right. So it makes it hard if there's not a great alignment between them. Right. So it's if, if you're familiar with uh, the tasks of grammatical error detection and grammatical error correction, uh, that's the task where you're actually given or like organic L2 learner output, which has the mistakes in it. And you're trying to detect which tokens were wrong and, and, and in what way they were wrong in some cases, this is almost the opposite of that. So this is what we expected you to generate correctly. And this is, these are the mistakes you made, uh, but they're kind of limited to with respect to what you were supposed to have generated. So I wonder if uh, the data in this shared task reflect the natural distribution of uh, native languages in your user uh, population, or did you stratify it in certain ways to um, for any specific goals that you had in mind? Uh, so in this particular data set, given the timeline that we were working on and how easy it was to pull data from our uh, data warehouse, the English learners are all native speakers of Spanish. And the, the Spanish learners and the French learners uh, in those corpora, they were all native speakers of English. Or at least they were uh, all Duolingo courses or pairs of languages, which is what we assume to be a native language, although sometimes it's a second language, but a very proficient one. Uh, so basically, the three tracks more, uh, more accurately are Spanish, for English learners, French for English learners, and English for Spanish learners. Uh, in the future, if we do something like this again, uh, I think we would pool more broadly from um, so that English learners had a more 
of a variety of language backgrounds, not just Spanish, but also French and Japanese, Chinese, uh, Portuguese, etc. So uh, switching directions just a little bit, uh, I think we, we've got a decent handle on, how, on the data that you've collected, which is I'm taking a bunch of learners, I have some exercises they did, I take the correct answer and I mark yes, no, did they get each word correct? Um, say I'm a linguist that wants to know how, like, study the process of second language acquisition. Can you argue for why this data set is a good one? A few reasons. Um, there, so there are sort of token level annotations of uh, which words were correctly generated and not. And each, each error uh, could be the result of several different things. So it could be a vocabulary gap. It could be a morphology error. It could be a syntax or a word order gap. Uh, and because we have this somewhat longitudinal data over the course of time for beginners, uh, you could start to tease apart, ideally, this is what we were hoping, uh, to tease apart those kinds of different uh, aspects. Unfortunately, almost, most of the, well, broadly speaking, the, the different teams that participated in the task, they, were, they took two approaches, either fancy algorithms or fancy features. Uh, and there were a few teams that did both, uh, but the winning teams generally were the fancy algorithms teams, uh, who maybe did absolutely no feature engineering beyond what we provided. Uh, and one of the, the shortcomings of that, uh, is that it lended itself to very little insight on the actual language learning process. I, I guess related to that, if, if I had a system that could do this arbitrarily well, so say, say that I could predict um, for a particular exercise what the user is going to do wrong. How would that help me? Uh, like, what, what could I do with that? Right. So the, the reason we're interested in this question of Duolingo is to help drive personalized adaptive lessons. Uh, so if we can have a system that, that, whether explicitly or implicitly, has some notion of this user struggling with plural subjunctive conjugations. So we should... Next time they come into practice, we should try to bias that lesson to include more of those so that they get more practice of that. Even if what we're actually teaching them is something else entirely, we do have exercises that introduce new vocabulary, but happen to use this particular, you know, morphosyntactic thing that they're struggling with. Um, another use would be to provide users or teachers, because uh, lots of teachers use Duolingo in the classroom, with more detailed or interesting learner analytics. Uh, so not just, you know, here's some score, some gamified score, um, which is very motivating and part of why Duolingo is structured like a game, but also here are the different aspects of language learning and here is how well you're doing on them. Uh, and then that, that could help students in their own self-study or teachers in a classroom setting uh, be able to know where they should focus or draw in resources from other ways. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I guess I was also thinking of, uh, I think, a paper you had a couple of years ago on spaced repetition. And I, I, as I was reading it, this, sec this modeling paper about your shared task, I wondered, do you really always want to only show things that the user is struggling with? Like, could you use this, uh, to say this another way, um, I might want to show the user... Uh, an exercise that that they're not struggling with, but I might predict they will be so at some point in the future if they don't see this one. Uh, right. 
it, it's kind of an open question of when is the optimal point to uh, to practice. You know, is it when you're just on the verge of forgetting? Is it just a little bit before that? Intuitively, I th- that's what I would say. Uh, and if we had an arbitrarily good system for this, then you know, I could lean on some of my active learning chops to uh, to, to try to tune and, and figure out where those thresholds are. Um, or, or how to prioritize, you know, out of the 7,000 different aspects of language learning that we could get you to focus on right now, you know, which are the, the, which are the arms we're going to pull. So this last question is how, how would you imagine a person actually doing this task? Like, is this something like, I'm just thinking like, if I'm trying to build a system, probably I, uh, I, I would want to build some intuition on how I would solve the task first, just to convince myself that it's even solvable, and then use those intuitions to design the model. So what what kinds of things do you think would help a person um, solve whether or not a user that's doing this exercise will get this right or wrong? Like, how, how should I even start to build a model? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I'm not sure what a human baseline for something like this would even be. Uh, I mean, the task is given a, a language learner and their history with certain exercises in the past predict the mistakes that they're going to make at some arbitrary time point in the future. Uh, and that, that, that's kind of like weird. Although in some, uh, some opaque and magical way, like that's what good teachers do, right? <laughs> good, good teachers are, are, um, perceptive of their students uh, the mistakes that they've made in the past and, and make some guesses about uh, how to correct for that or, or you know, deal with that in the future. Um, and so I guess where that's mostly played into how to approach this task is maybe in the feature engineering. So things like uh, what are the different core components of language? What are the different features that might affect how easily you learn things? Like, is this a cognate? Or uh, does it represent some language feature that exists in the L1? How long has it been since they've seen this? How likely are they to have forgotten it? Um, So most of where that transfers over is thinking qualitatively, like how, how would a human approach this and then trying to build those into, um, the the second language acquisition modeling system yeah great uh and i think that that's a nice segue into uh, the systems that actually were submitted to the shared task because i I think you the paper mentions that a a bunch of those features were uh tried by a bunch of the systems Mm -hmm. right so do you want to tell us about the systems that were submitted to the task and how well they did yeah so there were 15 systems uh and they uh I, i kind of got ahead I kind of alluded to this earlier that there were broadly two approaches of fancy algorithms and fancy features. Uh, I'd say about somewhere between a third and half the systems used uh, a logistic regression or some other kind of linear classifier, uh, which is also what we provided as a baseline system. Um, And those teams in broad strokes came from more language and psychology backgrounds and spent most of their time engineering new features like what I uh, what I just described. So broadly speaking, some of those were, uh, some of the more successful ones were word corpus frequency, uh, s- string edit distance between the L1 and L2 or c- 
cognate cognateness. Um, some teams use quick. Sorry, quick question on that word frequency mm-hmm. is when you say corpus, do you mean in the exercises or do you mean in some like what large pile of text? Yeah. So they, they, they drew from other corpora, either spoken or written corpora, like movie subtitles or Wikipedia or things like that. So okay. empirical, uh, word frequency and other, uh, domains. And I, I, I missed this in your paper, but I wanted to be sure I asked, um, it, were there features like how often the user had seen the word previously? Yes, so that's another one. Uh, how there were several user word interaction features, like history features. So things like how frequently they'd seen the word in the past, uh, a running average of their accuracy with that that word or token. Uh, some teams spliced those up into lemma and inf- inflection. Um, you know how many times they'd seen this in a this this root form versus this particularly inflected form uh vector space embeddings were other features that that people had tried um and in the in the the paper the meta-analysis we actually have a figure that just kind of names a lot of the different features and how popular they were as well as estimates of what effects if any uh they seem to have on the area under the ROC curve, which is the evaluation metric we used in this task. Um, so uh, on the algorithm side, so those, that's kind of the feature side. On the algorithm side, uh, I guess I, I should also say we provided some linguistic features. Uh, we used uh, Google SyntaxNet to part of speech, tag, and parse uh, all of the the reference answers. And so we provided those along with morphology uh, features. Um, and, and so some teams chose to use those and some did not. And some actually just ran their own parsers to generate their own. And then, and then the other class of systems used like fancy RNNs. Right. So there were uh, on, on the, on the algorithmic side, uh, generally there was three groups of approaches. There were the linear models, which I already described uh, gradient boosted decision trees were pretty popular or, or, uh, random forests, basically tree ensembles. Uh, and then also there were recurrent neural network approaches and there were, there's at least two ways to use a recurrent neural network for this data set. Uh, so one is the way it would normally be used in a, like a part of speech tagging or named entity recognition task where within each exercise, you're trying to tag each token within this sentence. Uh, but then, you could also use a recurrent neural network kind of as a um, what's essentially a knowledge tracing model. Uh, knowledge tracing comes out of the intelligent tutoring system community and you usually use uh, hidden Markov models for this. But uh, tracking a, a particular user's history with all the words over time. So you've got this kind of global RNN and you can have a local exercise level RNN. Uh, and some of the more successful teams combined these. Uh, one team actually trained two separate models uh, and then had them vote in an ensemble sort of approach. Uh, another team actually had a unified model with a unified loss function. Uh, and, and that approach seemed to do a little bit better. Uh, but it's, it's hard to, to know whether that was why because there are also different feature engineering um, uh, design decisions. Right. Any... Um... Any interesting high-level takeaways? I guess we've talked about some of them, that there are these different kinds of features. Uh, I guess I don't think you've told us um, the results of the uh, effect um, 
modeling you did? Right. So we did a, a linear mixed effects model to try to estimate uh, how well or how, how much a particular algorithm design decision contributed to uh, the area under the ROC curve evaluation while controlling for random effects like, um, you know, which user was it, uh, which, which language was it, because uh, there were systematic differences between English and French and Spanish. Um, I forget which one was easiest, but, uh, and then also the different team, you know, different, uh, different aspects of, of the implementations of the algorithms that we can't necessarily account for by just, they used an R and N. Um, broadly speaking, there was a significant, um, positive effects using recurrent neural networks, uh, and slightly significant positive effects using decision tree ensembles. Uh, and also there were some teams that chose a multitask approach to the, the task, which is we were hoping some people would do, which is also why we provided three different tracks. Uh, so what we were hoping to get to the bottom of are what are the commonalities and what are the differences about learning English versus French versus uh, Spanish. Um, and teams that chose a multitask approach also had a significant boost in their uh, area under the ROC curve because it um, presumably it was able to leverage information about the innate problems of language learning across the three tasks. So what do you, what would you say you've learned from the, the result of this shared task? Has it changed anything that you're doing at Duolingo? Well, we had actually internally tried uh, recurrent neural networks uh, a bit in the past at the exercise level, not kind of at the word level like this before. And we're not able to get them to perform it any better than just a logistic regression, which a footnote that I should mention for those who aren't as familiar with psychometrics and, and uh, the intelligent tutoring system community. A logistic regression in this case is what would be known as an item response theory model or uh, more specifically an additive factor model in that community. Uh, and it's pretty standard in how like, computer adaptive tests and intelligent tutoring systems work. In the simplest form, you, it's like a logistic regression, logistic regression with two features. One is an uh, an indicator variable for the user, and another is an indicator variable for the exercise, or in this case, like a token. Uh, and then, uh, like, if a user has a, a weight of zero, that means they're the average user. And if it's a positive one, then they're one standard deviation better than average. And, uh, and that's how these systems tend to work. So those kind of, like, a recurrent neural network or deep knowledge tracing uh, and, like, this a logistic regression or an item response model uh, are two ends of a complexity extreme um, or, or spectrum. Uh, we had been biased more toward the simpler uh, linear models uh, just because they seem to, to work well in what we had tried internally. So this actually opened our minds a little bit about uh, using more um, uh, sequential modeling over time. Uh, one of the downsides, though, however, is they're less interpretable. Uh, you have less of a sense if, if we wanted to provide these detailed user analytics or um, kind of theory-based adaptive lessons, uh, if you're unable to extract you know, what it is a particular learner is struggling with in some symbolic way, um, then those are some limitations. But we're starting uh, some more initiatives 
to dig into this uh, within the company. And so I think we're, we're going to use the results of this shared task as a starting point um, for some of those investigations. And I think something else that we learned were the limitations of the data and the task as defined. So I think Walid already asked a question about the language backgrounds. Uh, so part of the reason that things like word cognate features didn't seem to help uh, very much is probably because there wasn't much flexibility uh, uh, for them to shine. Whereas if you were comparing a, a Chinese speaker and a Russian speaker and an Arabic speaker and a Spanish speaker, all learning English, uh, those sorts of features probably will, will matter more. Uh, also, word corpus maybe didn't matter as much because these were all beginners and it was a fairly limited time window of 30 days. Uh, I think also the spaced repetition features didn't help as much. So if we were to do something like this again, which... Uh, which I hope we do, uh, it would be a longer data set with a variety of L1 learner backgrounds. Uh, and I think that would make for a richer, more interesting task. And hopefully we could also learn more, not just about what kind of algorithms work, but uh, uh, more about second language acquisition generally. So just as much science as engineering. Yeah. And I feel like uh, if you also are somehow able to like do multi-class classification on like what kind of error this is, you'd probably get a lot more both in the interpretability side because you might not know what the model is doing, but at least you have output that you can aggregate and give some kind of detailed feedback about what kinds of errors the, the person makes, uh, but also uh, maybe get some more insight on what the model is actually doing too, because you have, uh, I, I guess, more, as you said, like, Cognate might matter more for this particular um, kind of classification decision instead of just a yes/no. Right. Uh, yeah, and and that's part of the reason we just we started with what we did um, so that we could iterate and get feedback. You know, learn what worked, what didn't, what were the limitations, what were the strengths, what are the kinds of research questions that people from all three of these communities would want to ask of this kind of data, and uh, uh, and then. Hopefully we can dig into the data resources that we have to provide stuff like that in the future. Yeah, great. Uh, this has been a inter uh, really interesting discussion. Thanks for coming on. Uh, do you have any last thoughts or is there anything you wanted to talk about that we missed? Um, well, we're hiring. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to duolingo.com slash jobs. Uh, we're, we're looking for more machine learning engineers and research scientists to work on these efforts. Yeah, they're really interesting problems. I've been very tempted myself to Duolingo. <laughs> I, I applied for an internship there back in the day. Back in the day, yeah. When, when we didn't really have the bandwidth to support interns, <laughs> I remember that, and I apologize. <laughs> yeah, anyway, th thanks for this. It's been really fun. All right, thanks for having me.